Part 3, Chapter 4, Outward Humility To a poor widow, Eliseus said, Borrow some empty vessels and pour oil into them. To receive God's grace into our hearts, they must be emptied of our own vain glory. A kestrel cries out and stares at birds of prey and thus frightens them away by some secret power and property it has, and because of this fact, doves love the kestrel better than any other kind of bird and live near it in safety. In the same way, humility drives away Satan and keeps the graces and gifts of the Holy Spirit safe within us. For this reason, all the saints, and particularly the king of saints and his mother, have always honored and cherished this precious virtue more than any other among all the moral virtues. We apply the term vainglory to whatever we assign to ourselves, whether something that is not actually in us, or something in us but not of us, or something in us and of us but not such that we can glory in it. Noble ancestry, patronage of great men, and popular honor are things that are not in us but either in our ancestors or in the esteem of the other men. Some men become proud and overbearing because they ride a fine horse, wear a feather in their hat, or are dressed in a splendid suit of clothes. Is anyone blind to the folly of all this? If there is any glory in such things, it belongs to the horse, the bird, and the tailor. It is a mean heart that borrows honor from a horse, a bird, a feather, or some passing fashion. Others value and pride themselves because of a fine mustache, well-trimmed beard, carefully curled hair, soft hands, ability to dance, play cards well, or sing. Such light-minded men seek to increase their reputation by frivolous and foolish things. Others would like to be honored and respected by men because of a little learning, as if everyone should go to school to them and take them as their teachers. They are called pedants for this reason. Other men have handsome bodies and therefore strut about and think that everybody dotes on them. All this is extremely vain, objectionable, and foolish, and the glory based on such weak foundations is called vain, foolish, and frivolous. We recognize genuine goodness as we do genuine bomb. If bomb sinks down and stays at the bottom when dropped into water, it is rated the best and most valuable. So also, in order to know whether a man is truly wise, learned, generous, and noble, we must observe whether his abilities tend to humility, modesty, and obedience, for in that case they will be truly good. If they float on the surface and seek to show themselves, they are so much less genuine in so far as they are more showy. Pearls conceived and nourished by wind or thunderclaps are mere crusts devoid of substance. So also men's virtues and fine qualities conceived and nurtured by pride, show, and vanity have the mere appearance of good without juice, marrow, and solidity. Honors, dignities, and rank are like saffron, which thrives best and grows most plentifully when trodden underfoot. It is no honor to be handsome if a man prizes himself for it. If beauty is to have good grace, it should be unstudied. Learning dishonors us when it inflates our minds and degenerates into mere pedantry. If we are demanding about rank, place, and title, then we not only expose our qualities to examination, judgment, and condemnation, but make all of them base and contemptible. Just as honor is an excellent thing when given to us freely, 
so also it becomes base when demanded, sought after, and asked for. A peacock spreads his tail in self-admiration, and by the very act of raising up his beautiful feathers, he ruffles all the others and displays his own ugliness. Flowers that are beautiful as they grow in the earth wither and fade when plucked. Like men who smell the mandrake from afar and while passing it sense its fragrance, whereas those who smell it closely for a long time become ill and stupefied, so honors afford pleasure and satisfaction to those who view them from a distance and lightly, without being deceived by them or becoming serious over them. Those who dote and feed on them deserve great blame and reproof. For us, the pursuit and love of virtue provide a start in virtue, but the pursuit and love of honor make us contemptible and deserving of blame. Generous minds do not amuse themselves with the petty toys of rank, honor, and titles. They have other things to do. Such things belong only to idle minds. A man who can own pearls does not bother about shells, and those who aspire to virtues do not trouble themselves over honors. It is true that everyone can take and keep his proper rank without damage to humility if this is done unaffectedly and without quarreling. Travelers returning from Peru bring back gold and silver, but they also bring back apes and parrots because they cost little and don't burden the ships. So also, men who aspire to virtue need not reject rank and honor due to them if this does not cost them too much care and attention or involve them in trouble, anxiety, disputes, and quarrels. I do not refer to men whose dignity concerns the public, or to certain particular occasions attended with great consequences. In these matters, everyone ought to keep what belongs to him with prudence and discretion, accompanied by charity and courtesy. Part 3, Chapter 5 Deeper Interior Humility You wish me to lead you still further into humility, Philothea? since to do what I have already said pertains to wisdom rather than humility, and I will now do so. Many men neither wish nor dare to think over and reflect on the particular graces God has shown them because they are afraid that this might arouse vainglory and self-complacence. They deceive themselves in this. Since the true means to attain to love of God is consideration of His benefits, as the great angelic doctor states, the more we know about them, the more we shall love him. As the particular benefits he has conferred on us affect us more powerfully than those we share with others, they must be considered more attentively. Certainly, nothing can so effectively humble us before God's mercy as the multitude of his benefits, and nothing can so deeply humble us before his justice as our countless offenses against him. Let us consider what he has done for us and what we have done against him. And as we reflect on our sins one by one, let us also consider his graces one by one. There is no need to fear that knowledge of his gifts will make us proud if only we remember this truth, that none of the good in us comes from ourselves. Do mules stop being dull, disgusting beasts simply because they are laden with a prince's precious perfumed goods? What good do we possess that we have not received? And if we have not received it, why do we glory in it? On the contrary, a lively consideration of graces received makes us humble because knowledge of them begets gratitude for them. But if we are deceived by vanity on seeing the grace of God conferred on us, it will be an infallible remedy to consider our own ingratitude, imperfection, and misery. 
If we reflect on what we did when God was not with us, we will easily perceive that what we do when He is with us is not the result of our own efforts. We will, of course, enjoy it and rejoice in it because we possess it, but we will glorify God because He alone is its author. Thus the Blessed Virgin proclaims that God has done great things for her, but she does so only to humble herself and to glorify God. My soul magnifies the Lord because He has done great things for me, she says. We often say that we are nothing, that we are misery itself and the refuse of the world, but we would be very sorry if anyone took us at our word and told others that we are really such as we say. On the contrary, we make a show of flying away and hiding ourselves so that people will run after us and seek us out. We pretend to want to be last in the company and to be seated at the foot of the table, but it is with a view to moving more easily to the upper end. True humility does not make a show of itself and hardly speaks in a humble way. It not only wants to conceal all other virtues, but most of all it wants to conceal itself. If it were lawful to lie, dissemble, or scandalize our neighbor, humility would perform arrogant, haughty actions so that it might be concealed beneath them and live completely hidden and unknown. My advice, Philothea, is for us not to speak words expressing humility or else to speak them with a sincere interior feeling in keeping with what we utter outwardly. Let's not lower our eyes except when we humble our hearts. Let's not make a show of wanting to be the lowest unless we desire with all our hearts to be such. I maintain that this rule is so general that I don't admit any exception to it. I add only that sometimes good manners require of us to offer precedence to those who will surely refuse it, and this is neither duplicity nor false humility. In such cases, the offer of precedence is only the beginning of honor, and since we cannot give it to them entirely, it is not wrong to give them its beginning. I say the same about certain words of honor or respect, which do not seem to be strictly true, but are sufficiently so, provided the speaker's heart contains a sincere intention to honor and respect the man addressed. Although it is with some exaggeration that the words mean what we say, we do not act wrongly in using them when common usage requires it. However, I would truly like our words always to be suited as closely as possible to what we feel, so that in all things and through all things we may maintain heartfelt sincerity and candor. A truly humble man prefers that another tell him that he is a sorry fellow, that he is nothing at all, and that he is worth nothing, than to say it himself. At least, if he knows that someone says this about him, he does not contradict it, but heartily agrees with it. Since he firmly believes it, he is satisfied if others adopt his opinion. Many say that they leave their mental prayer to the perfect, and that they themselves are unworthy to use it. Others protest that they do not dare to receive Holy Communion frequently, because they do not feel themselves to be sufficiently pure. By reason of their great misery and weakness, others fear that they will bring disgrace on devotion if they take part in it. Others refuse to use their talents in the service of God and their neighbors because they say they know their weakness, and fear they'll become proud if they are instruments of any good, and that by giving light to others they will be consumed. All this is merely artifice, and a form of humility that is not only false, but even malicious. By it, they silently and subtly try to find fault with the things of God, or at least to conceal love for their own opinions, moods, and sloth under the pretext of humility. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God, either unto the height of heaven above, or unto the depths of the sea below, said the prophet to the unfortunate Ahaz, as he answered, I will not ask, and I will not tempt the Lord. O wicked man! 
he pretends to show great reverence for God, and under the color of humility excuses himself from aspiring to the grace to which God's mercy calls him. Does he not see that when God desires to give us his graces, it is pride to refuse them, and that God's gifts obligate us to accept them, and that it is humility to obey and comply as nearly as we can with his desires? It is God's will that we become perfect by uniting ourselves to him and imitating him as closely as possible. The proud man who trusts in himself has good reason not to attempt anything. The humble man is all the more courageous because he recognizes his own impotence. The more wretched he esteems himself, the more daring he becomes, because he places his whole trust in God, who rejoices to display his power in our weakness and raise up his mercy in our misery. We may therefore humbly and devoutly presume to undertake all that is judged proper for our advancement by those who direct our souls. To think that we know what we do not know is complete folly. To desire to pass as knowing what we are well aware we don't know is inexcusable vanity. For my part, just as I would not parade knowledge even of what I actually know, so contrarywise I would not pretend to be ignorant of it. When charity requires it, we must candidly and gladly share with our neighbor not only what is necessary for his instruction, but also what is useful for his consolation. Humility conceals and covers over virtues in order to preserve them, but it reveals them when charity so requires, in order that we may enlarge, increase, and perfect them. In this respect, humility imitates a certain tree found on the island of Tylos. At night it contracts and closes up its beautiful carnation blossoms and only opens them again in the morning sun. Hence the natives of the country say that they sleep at night. In like manner, humility covers over and hides all our purely human virtues and perfections and never displays them except for the sake of charity. Since charity is not a natural but a supernatural and not a moral but a theological virtue, it is the true sun of all the virtues and should have dominion over them. Hence, we may conclude that acts of humility that are offensive to charity are certainly false. I don't want to play either the fool or the wise man, for if humility forbids me to play the sage, candor and sincerity forbid me to act the fool. Just as vanity is opposed to humility, so artifice, affectation, and dissimulation are contrary to honesty and sincerity. If certain great servants of God have pretended to be fools in order to render themselves more abject in the eyes of the world, we must admire but not imitate them. They had their motives to act in this unusual fashion, and those motives were so special and extraordinary that no one should draw conclusions from them for himself. When David danced and leaped before the Ark of the Covenant with a vigor that ordinary decorum does not require, this was not because he wished to act foolishly. With all simplicity and without any affectation, he made use of such outward movements to express the extraordinary and excessive joy he felt within his heart. It is true that when Michal, his wife, reproached him for it as a foolish act, he was not sorry to see himself criticized. Continuing in a natural and genuine manifestation of joy, he testified that he was glad to be criticized for the sake of God. In consequence, I tell you that if people think you are abject or foolish because of acts of true, genuine devotion, humility will cause you to rejoice at such fortunate criticism, for its cause is not in you, but in those who make it. Part 3, Chapter 6 Humility causes us to love our own abjection. 
I now move on to tell you, Philothea, that in all things and through all things you should love your own abjection. In Latin, abjection signifies humility, and humility means abjection. Thus, when Our Lady says in her sacred canticle that because Our Lord has regarded the humility of His handmaid, all generations shall call her blessed, she means that Our Lord has graciously looked down on her abjection, meanness, and lowliness in order to heap graces and favors upon her. However, there is a difference between the virtue of humility and abjection, for abjection is lowliness, meanness, and baseness in us, although we are not aware of that fact, whereas humility is true knowledge and voluntary acknowledgement of our abjection. The chief point of such humility consists not only in willingly admitting our abject state, but in loving it and delighting in it. This must not be because of lack of courage and generosity, but in order to exalt God's majesty all the more, and to hold our neighbor in higher esteem than ourselves. I urge you to do this, and that you may understand me more clearly, I point out that among the evils we suffer, some are abject and others are honorable. Many men can easily adapt themselves to evils that bring honor with them, but hardly anyone can do so with those that are abject. You see, a devout old hermit covered with rags and shivering with cold, everyone honors his tattered habit and sympathizes with his sufferings. If a poor tradesman, a poor gentleman, or a poor gentlewoman is in the same condition, people laugh and scoff at them. Thus you see that their poverty is abject poverty. A monk meekly receives a sharp rebuke from his superior or a child from his father, and everyone calls it an instance of mortification, obedience, and wisdom. If a lord or lady suffers the same thing from someone, then even though it is accepted out of love for God, it is called cowardice and lack of spirit. Hence you see here another abject evil. One man has a cancer in his arm and another on his face. The first has only the disease, while the other suffers contempt, disgrace, and abjection along with the disease. Hence, I hold that we must not only love the disease, which is the duty of patience, but we must also embrace the abjection, and this is done by the virtue of humility. Moreover, there are virtues that are abject and virtues that are honorable. Patience, meekness, simplicity, and even humility are virtues that worldly people consider mean and abject. On the other hand, they hold prudence, courage, and liberality in the highest esteem. There are also acts of one and the same virtue, some of which are despised and others held in honor. To give alms and to forgive injuries are both charitable acts, yet the first is held in honor by everyone, while the second is despised by the eyes of the world. A young gentleman or a young lady who refuses to take part in the dissipated conduct of a debauched group or to talk, play, dance, drink, or dress like the rest will be scorned and criticized by the others and their modesty will be called fanaticism or prudery. To love this is to love our own abjection. Take abjection of another kind. We visit the sick, and if I am sent to the most miserable among them, it will be abjection for me in the eyes of the world, and for that reason I will love it. If I am sent to persons of quality, it is spiritual abjection, for there is not so much virtue or merit in it, and hence I will love this abjection. One man falls down in the public street, and in addition to the fall incurs shame. We must love such abjection. There are even faults that involve no other ill except abjection. 
Humility does not require that we should deliberately commit such faults, but it does require that we should not disturb ourselves when we have committed them. Among them are certain kinds of folly, incivility, and inadvertency that we should avoid out of regard for good manners and discretion, but if they have been committed, we should endure the objection we incur and willingly accept it so as to practice humility. I add further that if in passion or anger I have spoken any unbecoming words by which God or my neighbor may have been offended, I will sincerely repent and be sorry for the offense and make the best reparation I can. At the same time, I will accept the abjection and contempt it has brought upon me. If the one could be separated from the other, I would gladly cast away the sin and humbly keep the abjection. Although we love the abjection that follows an evil, we must not forget to correct by just and lawful means the evil that caused it, especially when it is serious. If I should have some disagreeable infection in my face, I will try to have it cured, although not with an intention to forget the abjection I received from it. If I have done something that has offended nobody, I will not apologize for it, since although it were an offense, yet it was not lasting. That being the case, I could not excuse it, except with a view of ridding myself of the abjection, and humility does not permit this. However, if through inadvertence or folly I have offended or scandalized anyone, I will correct the offense by some true explanation, for evil is lasting and charity obliges me to remove it. Moreover, it sometimes happens that charity requires us to remove the abjection for the good of a neighbor before whom our good name must be preserved. In such cases, although we remove the abjection from our neighbor's sight in order to prevent scandal, yet we must carefully enclose it in our heart for our own edification. If you wish to know which are the best kinds of abjection, Philothea, I tell you plainly that the ones most profitable to our souls and most acceptable to God are those which come to us accidentally or because of our state in life. The reason is that we have not chosen them ourselves, but have accepted them as sent by God, and His choice is always better than our own. If we were to choose any form of humiliation, we should prefer the greatest, and those most contrary to our inclinations are such, provided that they are in keeping with our vocations. To say it once and for all, our own choice and selection spoil or lessen almost all our virtues. Who will say with the great king, I have chosen to be abject in the house of God, rather than to dwell in the tabernacles of sinners? No one can say this, Philothea, except him who to exalt us lived and died in such manner as to become the reproach of men and the outcast of the people. Many of the things I have told you may seem hard when you reflect on them, but believe me, they will be sweeter than sugar or honey when you put them into practice. 